Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast, all eyes on China. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, the latest White House official to make the trip to Beijing. But will it actually create a thawing of tensions with the U.S.? We'll debate that. Plus, an IPO comeback, Arm Holdings and Instacart making their plans to go public official. Will this trigger a flood of new big offerings or will we just get a trickle? We'll be joined by Goldman Sachs' former top software analyst Heather Bellini for her thoughts on the IPO pipeline and what the future has in store for the fintech space. And later, an industrial revolution. CrowdStrike gets booed and Apple gets caught up in messy mania. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and Julie Beal. We start off with the latest high-level talks between the world's two largest economies. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo arriving in Beijing for a series of meetings this week with Chinese officials and business leaders. Today, Secretary Raimondo meeting with her counterpart to try tackling China's restrictions on U.S. businesses, which include Intel and Microsoft. The meetings come at the end of a rough month for Chinese stocks. The crane shares China Internet ETF is off more than 11 percent in August on pace for its worst month since February. And the large cap FXI down nearly double digits. Both were higher today after China cut its trading tax for the first time in 15 years, an attempt to add confidence to its market. So what is at stake for investors as the two global powers meet? Got to go to the ambassador, Tim. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, she's the first Commerce Secretary to go to China in five years. Uh, Anthony Blinken was, Blinken, was, Blinken was there earlier in the year. And the bottom line here is, is the diplomatic measures have almost seized up. So the fact that this is being described as communication and just diplomatic dialogue to explain, hey, there's things that we need to do. We're not trying to keep China down in the world order. We recognize we are competing on a global stage for certain things. I think that's a great idea. I, I actually think diplomatic uh, procedures and dialogue in, in bilateral relations we have with a lot of countries in the world have basically seized up. I think it's good news. Back to the market, though. If people are expecting Chinese officials to put to cut a stamp tax in half and expect that to rally the market, I mean, you're crazy. What that does is it rallies trading. So the market rallied five and a half percent. It closed up one percent. You really need debt fueled consumption led policy. And Xi Jinping right now has not shown an inclination to do that. So the market's given back all of its gains from the July Politburo. Uh, if you look at EM, which looked like it was breaking out right at the same time, it's run into a wall. And there's different reasons for it. Um, I think you can overreact and say, hey, what they did over the weekend was a failure because it wasn't really attempting to be an economic plan. Right, right, right. It wasn't anything sustainable. I mean, it's a a quick fix. They need a a policy bazooka almost guy in order. And welcome back, by the way. Well, I was just, no, you know, Tim and I are thinking thinking the same thing because what I was going to say, but I will say it. I'm going to channel my inner John Sebastian, who is at Woodstock. Welcome back. Exactly. Uh, Mrs. Cotter. Well, no, Melissa Lee. Yes. Because listen. Although Tyler is, what do we talk about? Like Yellowstone or Mount Rushmore, and then we had CQ on Pantheon, Thursday. Pantheon, whatever. Yeah. Yes. 
it's still your rodeo here, and we miss you when you're gone, it's so great welcome to back. to be back. Good to see you guys. From China, right, in bazookas? Yes. Well, hopefully that doesn't come to pass, but I'll say this. I, you know, I think we continue to send people over there because I think our relations with the Chinese are probably the worst they've been since prior to the Nixon administration, number one. So that doesn't augur particularly well. However, and I think Tim is speaking to this, you can trade these stocks and— you know, Alibaba, in, in your absence, round trip, went from 85 to 114. We went back to 87 and a half or so last week. And here we are, 92 today. And we've been saying, you know, this is probably an opportunity to trade the stock from the long side. Tim mentioned that last week. So although I don't think our relations with China get better anytime soon, I think the trading opportunities, the underlying stocks are there. Yeah. And, you know, the point that you make about, you know, this five and a half percent rally after this uh, trading stamp cut tax, whatever the heck it is. I mean, there was a time, and I think we can all remember the not-so-distant past, where, you know, we were waiting to see how China would open and close, and that would dictate the course of our future. Our futures don't even move off anymore. And and I guess that's kind of a good thing, Um, but by the same token, like, more importantly, I think the point that our Commerce Secretary is over there, I think it is saying a lot here, because there is this tit-for-tat. We still do have lots of tariffs. We have these, um, you know, bans, these export bans that are put on, and they're going to start ratcheting up. And they also know that the Biden administration, as they get into the election year and there's more pressure there, they probably have more leverage, right? Because if they think that things that they can do can slow this economy and change the course of our election in a very legitimate sort of way, I mean, this is just how this sort of international relations stuff sorts of work, you know, kind of works. I mean, this is only going to get worse before it gets better. So if they can kind of set some sort of baseline, I think, for at least for the next year and a half or so, that's probably a good thing for everybody involved. The last thing we want to do is see China exporting their deflationary readings across the globe because we could find ourselves somebody said a debt fueled consumption we could find ourselves in a debt fueled spiral lower as far as economic malaise is concerned. Well, well China can issue China can engage in a debt fueled consumption. They have a lot of ability. China's balance sheet as a country is very very strong. I like I agree with a lot of things you just said. I also think we are not as worried about Chinese economy in terms of its impact on the world as we were before and in this country. Why? Chinese Chinese imports as a percentage of overall imports in this country uh, I think are back to where they were in two 2003. They're 13 and percent back in July. Mexico's over 15 percent. So if you think about the importance and what that meant, both in terms of GDP and also pricing power in this country, uh, I, I'm not all that concerned about it. I also look at the CSI 300, so China's benchmark index, and how it trades is not necessarily indicative of how I think broader emerging markets and all other markets and the health of the Chinese economy. They're not one and the same thing. And as Guy said, you still can trade these. I mean, if you look at the K-Web, which is the Chinese internet ETF, which has some of the biggest ETFs, excuse me, some of the biggest internet companies in China in an ETF. I mean, it's actually up 16% over the last three months. It's underperformed the S&P by 11% in the last year. But think about what our market has done in the last calendar year. It's underperformed by 11%. That's not a disaster. Um, and, and I still think China, despite all of their policy failings, and I think they need to do a lot more, um, seems as if they've taken hands off their own companies that were ahead of the government in terms right. of their independence. And that's, I think, the most important thing to investing there right now. Mm-hmm. They do have leverage. I mean, the point that Dan was making about the election, that's very interesting in terms of maybe we'll come to some sort of agreement or policy detente until just before the election, Biden administration. Like, how convenient is that? Um, But also the fact that American companies are probably more dependent on China than they were in 2003 in terms of profits, in terms of presence in China, Julie. And so while we may not rely as much on goods from China, um, the, you know, the U.S. corporations relying on China as a consumer of services and products probably a little bit greater than 2003 or, or the same, at least. 
I think that's absolutely right. If you're thinking, you know, if you're heading up NVIDIA, if you're, you know, Tim Cook at Apple, it's a little bit like the parents are fighting right now and you're trying to figure out what your own destiny is. Um, and so for them, I think it's very relevant what's going on in these discussions. You know, NVIDIA has to work you bend over backwards in order to, you know, defunction their chips in order to be able to sell them into this massive market. And, you know, on our side, you know, we are very, very thoughtful about how, you know, what can happen with Taiwan Semi because it's just such a critical linchpin in our own supply chains. So I do think there are places where it's really relevant, but I do think you do see some decoupling happening where, you know, their economy can really struggle and, and we can still be okay. But I think you have to think about each company's exposure and what it means if we consider continue to have very frosty relations. Yeah, I'll just say this, and that's a great point by Julie. You know, Apple, their iPhone 15 guy, I know you're already lined up I, for that I, one, is coming out next month here. And, you know, this is the first time ever that, that phones are going to ship from India, from Apple, you know, to the U.S. I think that's kind of interesting. When you think about the, you know, de, I, I guess the, you know, de-emphasizing China and the supply chains and everything that, you know, she mentioned Tim Cook and, and, and parents fighting. I mean, that is 100% the case. He has spent the last 20 years building up that infrastructure, you know what I mean, to make, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of consumer electronics that go out of China. And so when you think about Vietnam now has like 10 of Apple suppliers there, you know, India is making them. Yeah. So, you know, that's all happening. And, you know, here's the thing. That's really inflationary. I mean, like, yes, like when you think, yeah. yeah, I mean, like that's the other point. I think Apple has like 85% of the gross margin in the smartphone industry. Just think about that. All their competitors, okay, they're just trouncing them. If they have to reorient their supply chain, it's going to cost more. It's going to cost consumers more um, because they're going to pass it through. Well, it's, I mean, it happens across the board, not just with Apple, right? For all the chip makers who did business in China before, what we're seeing, we're worried about deflation being exported from mm -hmm. China, but maybe we should be worried on the, about the flip side. 100%. Companies having to, to work having around a near shore. China. Exactly, having a nearshore, and that is inflationary. I think so. And, and I think either way, China has different dynamics working with their brand in China. And we've talked about this. This is another fallout. I mean, um, I, I think the inflationary element of this, though, is not what people were worried about. I think Dan's talking about what people are most worried about, which is the Chinese economy seems to be a drag on the global economy. And we've been waiting for this reopening push that should have been. We actually want a little PPI. If you see China PPI going higher, that's actually really positive. Yeah. I've been concerned, and we should probably have a guest who knows more about this than I do, like somebody like Morgan Stanley, something to discuss it. But obviously, China, Taiwan, I still think it's going to rear its ugly head. And the Terry Gao, the, the founder of Foxconn, is running for president, I think that's the term, in Taiwan, saying, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't want to be the next Ukraine. There's a lot of things to be concerned about there. And to your point about inflationary pressures, I think the, the nearshoring, is that a term? That's more inflationary than the deflation they're exporting to us. I think what you're also saying, Mel, is something that would be really unique, I think, for all of us who, like, I'm no economist by any means here, but, like, when you think about this, let's just say the Chinese economy is weak. Let's say the Chinese consumer can no longer be relied upon to buy Teslas or to buy Apple uh, iPhone 15s, that sort of thing. So you have this weakness there. So U.S. multinationals who are really depending on much of their future growth from China, but then also the reshoring of jobs is inflationary for those goods that are coming back in being sold to U.S. consumers. And that really could be a really interesting dynamic if you think about it, because if China is not that engine of growth, you know, and then it's going to become more expensive, then you think about the idea of building these things here in America. We just don't, from an immigration policy, a whole host of things, we just don't have the capability to do it. So a lot of those goods would become a lot more expensive for U.S. consumers at a time where U.S. multinationals cannot rely on China. All right. Our next guest warns the U.S. and China are going about di diplomacy wrong. Yale University fellow 
Stephen Roach is in the Cold War camp. Professor Roach is the former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman. Stephen, great to have you with us. Always uh, good to get your perspective on this. Are, are you watching very closely developments out of uh, the secretary's trip to China, or you think it's really a, you know, nothing to come out of it? No. Uh, good to be on with you and the gang, Melissa. I'm sure I'm watching this, and I, you know, I, I know with interest uh, she's the fourth uh, senior official to, to visit since Blinken uh, finally broke the ice uh, in in June. Um, all these meetings were pretty much a carbon copy of the other. There's a lot of talk, a lot of ceremony, but very little in the way of concrete developments. I think the one new thing about um, the Commerce uh, Secretary Raimondo's uh, current visit is the agreement to set up some working groups that you know meet a couple of times a year. I'm not optimistic on trying to solve thorny problems by just getting together uh, once or twice a year. We need a much more substantial, permanent um, arrangement, and I've written about that and talked about it on your program before. Yeah, uh, it's a step in the right direction, though. Agreed. Um, what's your take on why the Chinese have not launched? a huge stimulus program as we've seen in the past. Why Why drips and drabs like this? No bazooka. Exactly. No bazooka coming out of out of China as we've seen before. Debt. You know, the, the debt intensity of the Chinese economy has exploded. Uh, it's, it was about 300 percent of uh, GDP at the end of last year, up 100 percentage points of GDP since uh, Xi Jinping uh, took over. And um, you know they're they're mindful uh, and they've been talking the talk but not really acting on it since 2016 about uh, Japan-style risks and you know they're right in the sweet spot of going much much too far on binging out on debt. Hey Stephen, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. Your perspective on this is is pretty unique considering the amount of time you spent there. So great to get your views. I'm most worried about the currency. Um, when I look at the risks out there, it's not that the CSI trades south of eight times, you know, uh, multiple. It, it's it's that the currency is really where we have contagion issues globally. And we've seen it. We've seen the dollar rally five percent uh, in since mid-July. It's coincided with a lot of the China pain. Um, can you give your thoughts on the future there? Well, the, the Chinese are doing their best to prevent um, the RMB from going down more sharply than they would like. But it's sort of been a losing game for them. Um, I think that's possibly one of the reasons, Tim, why they uh, moved so grudgingly uh, on short-term uh, lending rates uh, last week. Uh, they're, they're, they're mindful of the currency risk. Uh, there has been some capital flight uh, out of China, and um, you know that's also a, a concern of theirs. Mr. Roach, a week in China, President Biden made uh, comments about this a couple weeks ago. I mean, a lot of people think that will prohibit or keep them from doing something with Taiwan. I think it actually sort of emboldens them. What are your thoughts? Because stuff going on in the South China Sea right now is not particularly good. Well, I'm sort of, sort of with you, Guy. I think, uh, you know, when you have weakness at home, it's the old wag the dog movie. You know, you, you, you uh, start a conflict somewhere else to deflect attention away uh, from problems uh, at home. Uh, I hope and I, I certainly don't think China is going to move prematurely in, in Taiwan. But, you know, we're putting a lot of pressure on them uh, to react to our um, uh, position, which is very strident, especially in the U.S. House of Representatives. 
with respect to uh, Taiwan. So you can't rule anything out, but that's certainly not my uh, base case scenario. You mentioned the problems at home. I mean, youth unemployment is so bad that they are stopping. They're not going to report the, the data anymore. At what point does this become some sort of security uh, threat uh, to Xi Jinping? I mean, you mentioned that Xi Jinping is the security president. He's concerned with security, particularly domestically. And yet these internal problems, these domestic problems could lead to insurrection at some point if they're bad enough. Yeah, I, I think we, you know, we we overplay the likelihood of, a, a, you know, internal uprising in China. Youth unemployment is an issue, especially since the government uh, has clamped down a lot on the private sector, especially the Internet companies, as you guys noted uh, earlier. And that's a big source of uh, job growth for young people. They've got to address it, uh, even though they've um, suspended the data on it. They all know there's a serious problem there. You know, consumers are weak in China. They also cancel the data on consumer confidence. It would be great if, you know, we could cancel all of our bad data and pretend we don't have any problems either. But, you know, the Chinese canceling data or not, they know they've got serious issues that need to be addressed. All right. Uh, Professor Roach, thank you for your time. Thank you, Melissa. Stephen Roach. Um, so what, what do you think looks the most attractive here? You said we can trade this, but all these issues here. And I think I said 114. I think Bob got up to 104. But my point is it had a huge move of the upside. It's retraced the entire thing. And I think that's exactly right. You trade these stocks. But I'm glad Tim brought up the Chinese currency because, again, the last time we saw levels close to this was eight year, literally eight years ago almost to the day when the yuan was devalued and had the reverberations in global markets over the next couple of months. Markets don't seem to care about it right now. I'm not quite sure why, but I think they will soon enough. I think markets should care a lot about the dollar, and we should care about it for this market, but we should definitely care about it for, for EM. And as I said, the move we've had in the dollar, I don't know if we have a chart, it doesn't matter. The move, this last move in the dollar has been one of the bigger surges in a two-year dollar rally, which looked like it topped out last October. Uh, I still think it has, and uh, short dollar was one of the most crowded trades coming into even the second half of the year, so let's see. But if you trade EM X China, mm-hmm. look EWZ for Brazil, Look, INP for India. Those are two markets and economies that benefit from the things that are giving China problems. Meantime, MasterCard on the move. Shares trading at all-time highs dating back to the company's IPO in May of 2006. The stock's rally, it's up uh, nearly 17% this year, comes even as credit card delinquencies rise. The delinquency rate at the end of Q2 is at the highest it has been in more than a decade, according to the New York Fed. Julie, what do you make of this? How do you read this? Well, I mean, I I think this is kind of everything we've been talking about here for a while, right, where we continue to be really concerned about the health of the consumer, particularly the lower end consumer. And I think a lot of it is everyone feels confident pointing back to, well, we still have this excess savings glut. And it really matters who's holding the excess savings. If it's in the top 1%, it's not going to get spent. Oh, we have a little problem with Julie. Ghost in the machine. Ghost. So, I mean, the good right. news is I'm sure she'll be back The problem in is second. not her analysis, by the way. The no, problem, not that at was, all. She was yeah. smack on with that. No, it's a police album, as yeah. we said earlier. Yeah. No, so this works for companies that don't take credit risk. MasterCard and Visa, more transaction or process. I'm sure they care on the outskirts of credit risk and stuff, but it doesn't really affect them. One of the reasons they've outperformed American Express almost two to one this year is because of exactly that. 
Coming up, all eyes on prescription drug prices. Investors await the first batch of drugs up for negotiation with Medicare. So which names could make the list and how will pharma stocks react? That trade is next. Plus, industrial size gains, a group leading the market for over the past week. And a few names are even hitting all-time highs. So can they keep boosting your portfolio? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. A huge week ahead for Big Pharma as the Biden administration gets set to announce the first 10 drugs selected for Medicare Part D price negotiations. Analysts are expecting treatments from Pfizer, Eli Lilly, Merck, Abbey and Bristol-Myers to feature prominently on that list, which could be announced as early as tomorrow. We've talked a lot about the weight loss drug companies having extremely high multiples, but the rest of the group has really traded at depressed multiples in comparison to him. I'm thinking of your Pfizer, for instance. My my Pfizer is certainly one of them. And and it's it's as if Pfizer did nothing before COVID and COVID vaccines, and they're treated as if they didn't. And how are they going to come up with, you know, and they've spent a lot of money. They've spent $25 billion um, and put that money to work pretty quickly. And the expectation is it's a pipeline that's worth $30 billion in revenues by uh, 2030. We'll we'll see. Um, I I do think that Pfizer is very interesting here. And I do think that these negotiations are political and headlines and, and, you know, and it makes some sense that they're pushing back. But I'd be amazed um, if they're able to get some of the victories. I mean, the government. I I just I I think I think the drug companies, when they get together and we've seen individual fights being picked. But I think this is very complicated. We certainly heard the commentary on the recent conference calls about this. It's really, you know, the CEO speaking out again. We've seen. Uh, lawsuits being filed against the government to stop this because these price changes w- would go into effect in 2026. Um, Julie, how do you view this? Because, you know, it's interesting. We'll get the list of 10. And in theory, maybe that'll give you some clarity, at least for a short amount of time. But yet the government can still add names to that list in the future. So 
I mean, it's it's like a tiny sliver of clarity maybe for that day. <laughs> It's it's not much it's not much clarity, right? It's it's like asking for the list of all your greatest flaws. It's never going to be comprehensive, or at least it won't be for me. me. I'm sorry, um, but well, but I think you, you know. I think look, broadly speaking, <laughs> the biggest challenges we're going to have are you know getting confident that um, you know the list that we have is going to be okay. That's it. That's all we have to expect. We're not going to need any more. Of these cuts in terms of pricing. And I think, you know, when you consider the margins of some of these businesses, it's hard for them to argue against Congress, right? But they also are able to leverage back and say, look, but that's how we do our R&D is, you know, we make money on, you know, the drugs that we have in our pipelines. And so that supports an industry that's very strong. Think of, you know, we were the first to come to the COVID vaccine. So, you know, I think that there is a lot of lobbying that happens. It's one of the strongest lobbying bodies. And so they are able to muscle their way. But Congress has to look like they're doing something. And this is a very easy villain to pick. Pharma companies are the easiest villain to pick. A name like Eli Lilly guy. So whilst you were gone, I made another new all-time high. Right. Now it's whilst? Whilst. Is that it's not a word? Well. No, I mean, Back it's, in the, it's in Shakespearean. It's like it's 1700s very, wild. Yeah, it's very yeah. like powdered wig stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's <laughs> funny you say wig because I actually was the last person to vote when the wigs <laughs> were against the Tories yeah. back in the day, but that's probably anyway, a different show. all-time high. All-time high, and it's been on fire, but now valuations I think people will point to. It's very hard, in my opinion, for them to have the move they've enjoyed to continue the upside. There'll be a place to buy this cheaper. The one that's going to get really interesting really quickly is Eli Lilly, which has gone from 56 to 74 and change. Now here we are at $61. Valuation is reasonable, to say the least, but there's a reason why it's cheap to its peers. But if you can buy this stock between, I think, 57 and 59 for a trade, and I think it's probably headed there, that could get really interesting really quickly, Mel. So in, in, Wait, just real quick, yeah. just which, which stock is it? Lily's cheap. Yeah, Bristol-Myers. Bristol-Myers. Uh, uh, no, didn't I say BMY? No. no. Oh, I no. apologize. So BMY. Bristol-Myers. BMY is cheap, yeah. yeah. I think that it's interesting because there's these haves and the have-nots, and there's got to be some really good value in there, and it probably brings you back to some of these ETFs that make some sense. You don't have the idiosyncratic risk of, let's say, some of these weight loss ones that have done so well, and they're trading at really big multiples for a big pharma stock. And so um, to me, maybe it's that XLV is the way to play this. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Big Pharma in focus. A major change in prescription drug prices could be coming your way. The Medicare Part D update and the stocks that will be affected next. Plus, an industrial revolution. Several stocks hitting all-time highs. So what has these names building up gains? The Titans leading the industry ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. A few industrial names hitting records today. Eaton Corp, Ingersoll Rand, both trading at all-time highs. Industrial stocks outperforming the broader market over the past few months, up more than 9% since June. The S&P up just 5%. What do you make of this move, Guy? 
It speaks to, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of it is rotation into the names without question. Obviously, a lot of these high-flying tech stocks did, I mean, whilst, again, whilst well, uh, come on, you were going, no, NVIDIA went from, it was 516 in the after hours, traded down to 450 and changed its bounce. So I think there's been a rotation. Eaton's a great company. We probably don't talk about it nearly often enough if we talk about it at all. Problem, of course, now is going to be valuation. It's probably trading about 35 times trailing, maybe 28 times forward. I mean, these stocks get expensive very quickly, given the runs that they've had. Industrial is looking expensive. Julie? Yeah, I I, I think it's one of the kind of more underreported stories, right? Because the the valuation explosion hasn't been as extreme as what you've seen in big, uh, big cap tech, and it's not as sexy as AI. But for sure, you have to think, where are we in terms of the cycle for profitability and margins? A lot of these industrial businesses have done a wonderful job being able to price against what their product and value set is. If they start to feel more pinch from deflation, are they going to be able to maintain these margins? And then, again, valuation is really important because those forward numbers actually look worse than you're expecting. Well, if you think about some of the, the, the industrials that we spent a lot of time talking about, and you could even get into airlines if you wanted to, but I mean, those are transports. Um, they get lumped into a Dow industrial, but, but some of the rails and some of the, you know, the, the uh, I would say, again, shippers that would be fitting into an XLI, if you look at the, the contents of that ETF, there are parts of the industrial space that I actually think have pricing momentum. And we've seen actually some resilience in what's been going on with the shippers. Um, I think industrials, in terms of the broadening of the market, were actually attractive because they were seen as valuation interesting um, at a time when people were obviously running from mega cap tech. All right, coming up, don't call it a comeback. The IPO landscape gaining some traction after a rough 18 months, but is the market ready to welcome the newcomers? The details next, plus soccer star Lionel Messi making a splash in his MLS debut and one streaming platform is scoring its own goal thanks to him. More on the big win in live sports when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of Fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks jumping to start the week. The Dow climbing more than 200 points. The S&P up six-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq leading the charge up eight-tenths of a percent. But the three indices are all negative for the month of August. The S&P and Nasdaq both on pace for their worst month of the year. Still a couple of standouts today. Boston Scientific, Western Dig, 3M jumping more than 5% after reports the company has reached a tentative deal to settle lawsuits over its... Uh, combat earplugs. Meantime, Catalan shares jumping after hours. Reuters reporting it is close to a deal to grant board seats to Elliott Management. The tech IPO market showing some signs of recovery with Arm, Instacart, and Clavio all filing to go public in just the past week. Our next guest is no stranger to the IPO market, having spent nearly 10 years as Goldman Sachs's top software analyst. She recently joined InvestCloud, a software provider for the financial services industry, as its president and CFO, Heather Bellini, joins us here at the NASDAQ on set. Heather, welcome back to CNBC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Great Thank to have you, you for having us. me. Thank you. Um, what do you make of this? How big is this window, in your view, for IPOs at this point? I, I think it's all going to depend on how well these go. And you've read about some of the steps that they're taking to ensure that they're successful. I think that's really important to investor confidence and the companies, you know, such as the one I'm at, that, that look to follow on that path down the road. So it's, I think it's, uh, it's really important to make sure that these go flawlessly over the course of the next couple of months. How do you assess the market? What does it look like from your standpoint and in, in you know, from the standpoint of investors looking at uh, maybe companies that are newer may not have a, a set, a, you know, 
profitability at this point in stage may have um, some you know, uncertainty surrounding profitability with higher interest rates? So it's a great question. I think, look, the last 10 years or so, we've had free money, as all of you know, and it's really easy to do the next round when you've got free money and the, uh, the valuations just kept getting more and more eye-popping. But what's been really good about the last 18 months, I mean, it's good and it's bad, but the good that's come out of it is that we're building better sustainable businesses instead of growth at any cost. We're growing with sustainability in mind and not knowing that there's going to be another check around the corner. I mean, where I am now, I've got great backers like Clear Lake and Motive Partners that are able to give us the funding that we need to grow the business and capitalize on, on what we see as the opportunities ahead. Um, but, but it does take, I mean, I, I think we, uh, we, we all probably got a little too lax in terms of our, you know, the efficiency at which we were allocating capital. So Heather, you mentioned the free money period over the last you know, 10 years or so. When you right. think about over the last year and a half since the Fed started raising it rates, some of the biggest like, you know, checks have been written to software companies in around AI this year when we've had the quickest move of interest rates yes. off of a zero interest rate bound. And you think about it, how do these companies grow into these valuations? We've seen 200, 300 million dollars minting companies at unicorn status in like a series mm-hmm. A. That seems kind of bubbly. So that is the one area I was going to say around AI where people are willing and making these big investments. And I think what they're doing is they're looking back on public cloud and it really becomes an arms race, if you will, in terms of who's got the best large language models to be able to do this. So I I understand what's going on there. I I don't know how many of them are going to be winners, but obviously AI is going to be something just like the Internet's pervasive. And we used to not think of it that way if you were in, you know, thinking the mid 90s or late 90s. AI is pervasive in people's products, and people probably had AI before they even knew it was AI, right? I mean, we've been embedding that type of technology into the products we have at InvestCloud for the last 10 years, but you didn't think of it as AI until probably the last year or so. We spent a lot of time talking about the consumer. From your seat, what does the consumer look like? Um, From from my seat, I mean, I, I think it's probably not the area that I focus on that much. I mean, I'm much more enterprise focused. in, in terms of what we're doing and go to market. So I'm probably not the best person to help you with that. Going back to the AI thing, I mean, you, you mentioned that a lot of companies already had AI. So when we hear companies now talking about AI on a conference call or whatnot, I mean, does your skepticism antenna go, I mean, do they go up and the alarm starts sounding off? Well, you can count, stop, you, you start counting the number of times a management team might, right. might, uh, might mention it on a call. Uh, you know, Everyone skates to where the puck is, and I think it's, a bet. It's, it's really about trying to see where, how we're going to be able to take this technology and harness it and really do great things and, you know, digitally transform even more than what we've been able to do by leveraging this type of technology. So I, I understand why, you know, everyone starts mentioning it, mentioning it on their calls, and it gets to what you were just saying about the valuations of some of these companies. But, um, but it's got a lot of promise, and, and I'm sure we'll transform industries more so than we ever thought possible. So, so Heather, let, let's talk about enterprise then. And let's yeah. talk about, uh, you know, and you can look at this through the lens, maybe not necessarily yeah. as your former seat as, a, as an yeah. analyst covering mega cap tech companies, but to the extent that you are focused on the enterprise spend, where are we? There's been a lot of distractions about where it was going to be. Maybe it's getting pulled into AI more than it should be. Who's suffering and, and who's benefiting? So I think first and foremost, what we see in our business is and we sell to tier one financial institutions down to small RIAs, uh, there is a slowdown in spending. 
and you know people's budgets are getting scrutinized it's hard to see that not happening given what's going on with the markets and what happened with financials in the first quarter so it is harder i mean the there's always been a focus on roi but the it's it's when you can start delivering the roi so people are more interested in i would say land and expand type deals than necessarily doing these large transformational deals that might take three to five years to get payoff. They want to do them in more bite-sized chunks. So there, there's a lot of interest in if, if you've got a solution that can help transform someone's yeah. business and help increase share of wallet and you know change the experience that you're having with your customer. But it is, it, it's not, I would say, as easy as we might have seen it a few years ago. Perfect. So, yeah. Makes sense. Heather, great to have you with us. Thank Come you. again. Thank <laughs> Heather you. Bellini, Invest Cloud. Uh, Julie Beal, what do you make us off for valuations these days? I, I, they're kind of all over the map, right? Um, if you have a relevant connection to AI, I think investors are willing to pay quite a bit of money for that. What I think is kind of interesting is, you know, in talking to a lot of equity capital markets right now about the pipeline of potential deals that are coming through, it's really clear that they are telling their companies, look, you need to be profitable either now or in the next six months and, and as far as when your IPO happens. And I think that's a very different tone. And I think as an investor, it was very frustrating seeing a lot of these newer businesses spending you know, 70% of revenue on sales and marketing to drive their growth. To me, it's exciting to see that there are more sober minds at the table. But I still think that AI is the one place where people, I don't want to say they're on drugs, but I just I would love it if there were just a little bit more honesty about the timelines of when AI is really actually going to be productive for their income statement. Yeah, I think these next few months will be really interesting. So Instacart, again, this is one, a consumer model that we all became very comfortable with during the pandemic and pulled forward a lot of demand. And, you know, again, it's going to come at a level that, you know, much lower than where it might have come two years ago. But we got to remember also, the Nasdaq's up 37% right now. If you can't bring a deal that somebody, you know, that investors are very comfortable with, the product, the services, the business model, that sort of thing, in an environment like this, as we get into the fall, if we see some of these companies um, really do the filings, but then pull, Oh. That, that, that's going to be a really bad environment. It's going to actually, there's a huge backlog right now. We know that a lot of these VCs want to exit a lot of these things. But if you can't get some of these deals done decently with a NASDAQ up 30 plus percent, it's going to be a difficult uh, next year, I think, in 2024. Coming up, another busy week of earnings. CrowdStrike on deck to report on Wednesday. Should you strike while the iron is hot? Mm. With the auctions pitch for the action in that name. Plus, Apple TV scoring big on the messy mania streaming numbers. Kick into high gear, how to play the sports streaming stocks. That's next, back in two. Do not miss a special week of Mad Money dedicated to Jim's rules of investing and his most important market lessons. Starts at 6 p.m. Eastern time tonight right here on CNBC. Meantime, Apple is cashing in on Messi Mania, the tech giant's partnership with Major League Soccer getting a boost as the Argentine superstar plays his first games with Miami's football club. Our Julia Borson's got the details. Julia. 
Well, Melissa, Apple's $2.5 billion rights deal with Major League Soccer has turned out to be a win, thanks to Lionel Messi moving to Inter-Miami. Now, this weekend, he scored, helping his team defeat the New York Red Bulls, and he has driven a surge in interest in Apple's streaming app. After Messi joined the team mid-July, web and mobile traffic that month to Apple TV Plus ended up 45% globally and up 87% in the U.S., while in August, the month through Saturday, Global traffic is up 53% globally, according to Similar Web. This all comes after Inter Miami's team owner tweeted less than a month after Messi joined that MLS season pass subscribers more than doubled. Messi is an ambassador both for the league and for Apple TV Plus's MLS season pass subscription. It's $39 a season for Apple TV Plus subscribers, more if you're not a subscriber. And Messi is invested. He earns a share of MLS season pass revenue. Now, on the heels of MLS season pass growth, Wedmush predicting, quote, the shoe that fits for Apple is the golden ESPN assets, which potentially may be on the table in one form or another, as Iger and the board strategically and carefully look at Disney's core assets over the coming months. So now we'll have to see how long-lasting the Messi effect is. Will people who signed up to watch Messi stick around to watch Ted Lasso? Melissa? Or vice versa. <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> but is, so Wedbush is basically just putting it out there, like maybe there can be a tie-up between or, or some sort of acquisition of those assets? Well, look, ever since there was that report just last week that Amazon was in talks with ESPN and Disney about potentially being a partner there, we have to assume that everything is on the mm -hmm. table for Disney and ESPN. Bob Iger said they're looking for the right strategic partner for ESPN. We know that they're talking to all the leagues about potentially taking a stake in ESPN. But when it comes to distribution, you have to bet that if they're talking to Amazon, they're also going to at some point be talking to Apple as well. Yep. Julia, thanks. Julia Borston. Those ESPN assets looking really valuable, Tim. Good for Disney in, in theory. Well, it, it's amazing how ESPN was seen as a catalyst possibly to Disney stock, whether it was a spinoff or whatnot. Um, it's amazing, by the way, what's going on with MLS. And, and you think things are great for, for Messi. How about David Beckham? Um, and the move he made to move in and take a, a leading ownership stake in this franchise before people even knew soccer was a, a, a sport in this country. I, I'm joking, but I, I, it's, it's extraordinary. You have to give him a lot of credit for the influence he's also made on the sport. You're looking at me. You're looking at me about yeah, soccer. You always have a couple no, things to say. Well, no, I mean, I, he says people in the, in the 70s, when I was a young lad. Pele. Cosmos, Cosmos. We, oh, you couldn't Pele. get into Meadowlands. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't get into place. I can, I can rattle off names with the best. Giorgio Canale. Carlos Alberto on the back line Chef was Messing. doing his thing. Friends Beckenbauer. Sorry, that's my bad. Um, I would say that if you think about what Apple had to do to get access to this and what it means yeah. for Apple Plus, and you think about the titles that they have, the shows, the movies that they've been, a lot of folks have just made the point that they have not overdone it and those sorts of things, right? And so the, the ability to create a flywheel for this and doing it through the MLS is pretty genius in hindsight. They didn't have to overbid for right. the NFL or anything like that. The, the thing about this topic with the mega cap tech companies and their streaming influences, how are you investing in that when you're investing in Amazon and Apple? I mean, you're not. You're not. And, and, and so um, that's what makes this frustrating, even though they wield the marginal dollar of influence in the entire industry right now. And they may be the ones taking out Disney. Um, we'll see. In other words, Apple is worth what it's worth with or without Lionel that's, Messi. That's exactly. Yeah, but, you, you but hold on, hold on, Mel. You say that, but think about Amazon. Nice pronunciation. They have, a, they have a $35 billion ad business. 
Think about that. And it's a high margin. Right. And that really helped their margins across the board. So there are ways that you could envision, again, where hardware margins are coming down for Apple and uh, some of or their other devices and services and ad business and stuff like that. So to me, they have a $2 billion installed base of iOS devices. Oh, it's, it's they could be Google. In, in ads at some point, you know. When I say Lionel guy, who, who do you think? Lionel Richie. Yeah. Who, by the way, he was supposed to play at the Garden a couple of weeks ago, and <laughs> apparently he couldn't get down. Hello. Yeah. Goodbye. A lot of people were saying goodbye. For? By the way, we were looking for you. Yeah, people Lionel. apparently. By the way, he's a huge Fast he's Money fan, Lionel Richie. I'm just saying. Coming up, shares of CrowdStrike having an awful August, but will its next earnings report help turn things around? We are diving into the options pits to find out. We got the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. We've got a news alert on some big tech execs. Emily Wilkins got the details in D.C. Emily. Well, Melissa, we know that Congress is really interested in finding ways to regulate AI, who to regulate, how to regulate. And the way that they've approached this, Senator Chuck Schumer has held a number of bipartisan meetings with lawmakers. And now he's bringing in some of the biggest names in AI and tech to Capitol Hill for a big in-person meeting. This is going to include Elon Musk, Sam Altman, Mark Zuckerberg. We're going to see NVIDIA, Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, all come to Capitol Hill one day, September 13th, for a forum between everyone on what Congress's role needs to be when it comes to AI. Now, this will be closed to the press, but of course, we will be there. We will be uh, looking for any readout. We'll be talking to folks, uh, just trying to get a sense, really, of exactly how to move forward with this. At this point, lawmakers are pretty much in bipartisan agreement that something does need to be done with AI. They have a lot of concerns about the potential threats it could have to national security, to personal privacy. But at this point, there hasn't been a lot of agreement on exactly what legislation should look like or even on how to tackle it. And so this is going to be sort of Chuck Schumer's way of trying to build consensus, getting some of these businesses on board. It's a really unique way to approach legislation, but it speaks to the real bipartisan nature of AI on Capitol Hill and how much lawmakers want to get this done. Emily, thank you. Emily Wilkins in D.C. Another big week of earnings ahead featuring names like Best Buy, Salesforce, Chewy, Lululemon and CrowdStrike. The cybersecurity stock falling nearly 4% today after a downgrade to equal weight from overweight at Morgan Stanley. Options traders seem similarly pessimistic. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, CrowdStrike traded about two times its average daily put volume today. Right now, the options market implying a move of about 8% by the end of the week after they report earnings, it seems that some traders think that that move is actually going to be to the downside. The most active contract were the weekly 135 strike puts. We saw over 4,100 of those trade for a little over 220 a contract. The buyer is obviously betting that the stock's going to fall below that 135 strike price by that amount by week's end. That would be a downside move of about 8% or more. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Coe, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, we've got your final trades. Around the horn we go. Julie Beal. Uh, West Pharmaceutical, if you want to be in healthcare but you're worried about the pricing from the Medicare Act, this is a good place. It's drug delivery. Tim. Welcome back, Pantheon. And Energy Transfer Partners belongs in the Pantheon of MLPs, trades at a discount to its peers. <laughs> yes. Dan. Yeah, XLV looks okay. It's got Tim's Pfizer in it, too. Mm, got right it. On. Keeping with the Shakespeare theme, as Dan pointed out, 
Uh, Oracle reports on a fortnight or in a fortnight. So, Oracle, <laughs> nice job. Thank you. That wasn't easy. Lost. Yeah, the final trade. All right. Time for, uh, thank you for watching Fast Money special series, Mad Money Back to School. That starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.